Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century. One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response. In this special podcast series, we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia. The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. In this episode, we'll be talking to Drs. Andrew Warden and Rebecca Wattam about the SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern. Hi, I'm Srini Venkatramanan. And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID chaser. My name is Andrew Warren. Uh, my background is in uh, in school is in biochemistry and computer science. I, I guess I'm, I think of myself as a sort of computational biologist or bioinformatician. You know, our group is sort of focused in human health and security and in figuring out ways to address that. Um, uh, For a long time, I've been involved in the Patrick project, which is a bacterial bioinformatics resource uh, center. And then we merged with uh, the uh, viral version of that. So now we are BVBRC, Bacterial Viral Bioinformatics Resource Center. and this, the COVID response, like many researchers, is really my first sort of foray into the uh, viral genomics side of things. Um, prior to that, I, I have done some work um, from involved in government sponsors in, in working with the um, epidemiological simulations. Um, my name's Rebecca Wadham. I've been part of the Institute since it moved to the University of Virginia and before that when it was at Virginia Tech. As for my education, I have a joint PhD in entomology and in veterinary science. And I studied uh, mosquito transmitted diseases. The veterinary science part was parasitology. When we came first to Virginia, I was recruited to work in bacterial genomics and became part of the Patrick Project, which is part of the bioinformatics resource centers that are funded by the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. How we got around to COVID, although originally our BRC worked on viruses and I did part work on viruses at that time, which at that time included coronaviruses, believe it or not. And um, recently, the NIH came to us and asked us to sort of drop everything and create a new resource that collates a lot of information. Right now for COVID researchers, they have to go to a number of different localities And it's hard, and it's hard for the people at NIH to to keep track of everything. So they asked us to do what we sort of specialize at, which is bringing all the information together in one piece, interconnected all, and that allows researchers and the officials throughout at CDC or at NIH to come in and be able to look at the information that's available and be able to jump from one resource to another, they're all integrated so that you can look at specific changes 
monitor how those changes, what the history has been within the genome. And so that's what we've been doing for the past two months is launching this new uh, web website resource along with our other collaborators. I think like uh, in everyone's mind right now are these two Vs, the vaccines and the variants. And, and I'm sure like a lot of the resources that you were talking about is about uh, understanding where the variants are and what, what, what are their differences. But maybe we can even step back a bit and then uh, for people uh, who are listening to this fresh, like, uh, can you give us like an idea of like, what are we talking about in terms of this, this uh, phylodynamics and, uh, and also like, how have you looked at it from the beginning? Like, uh, uh, have you uh, tracked it before? The, the recent talk about B117 and other variants or? Yeah, I, I can take a crack at it. I, I um, early on in, in uh, February of uh, 2020, um, you know, when the, when the virus and news of the virus was, was um, coming out of China in, as, a, as a concern and uh, as a travel concern, was very gung-ho. I downloaded all of the uh, beta coronavirus sequences from uh, GISAID at the time. And I started working on um, a classifier for, um, beta, for recognizing beta coronaviruses. And the air almost immediately went out of my balloon um, in, in terms of when I realized that uh, really uh, genomic sequencing wasn't really being used as a contact tracing tool or even as a, as a of course, as a diagnostic tool, really um, uh, people were using uh, PCR to, to, and, uh, you know, to both diagnose and, and do kind contact tracing. And so, um, and so there weren't very many genomic sequences involved. Um, and, and, and um, it became sort of, uh, um, um, in, in terms of directly contributing to do something about the epidemic, especially as it got worse, um, really the genomic sequences um, didn't, didn't become a, a useful tool in terms of um, taking the fingerprint and, and using that in, in contact tracing and, and determining um, uh, what what strain a particular um, instance of the virus is until um, really around January of uh, 2021. And, and so the, to put it in a little bit in context, the, the variants of concern are um, strains of the virus, which really is just a combination of mutations, people often these days refer to those combination of mutations as constellations of, of mutations. Um, and and um, usually if you put it into a, a phylogenetic context, you'll talk about lineages. So, um, and, and that really is, uh, has to do of course with contact tracing because one, um, one version of the virus moves um, from person to person and, and that leads to, um, uh, sort of built up changes in, in that instance of, in that lineage of the virus. And so there are a bunch of changes going on all the time. The, the virus doesn't really care much about copy editing its um, RNA sequence. It just doesn't have good mechanisms for that. So it's always sort of exploring the space within um, the ability to infect the human. And, um, and so 
uh, it accumulates these changes that are advantageous to um, to better uh, spread um, to 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 more effectively spread between uh, between people, um, and that's really a, what a variant of concern is 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 a set of changes that are uh, relative to the original when we started uh, um, recording the genomic sequence back in uh, February of 2020. Um, the set of changes that allow the um, the virus that we have identified that are significant that allow the virus to be more successful. But let me also point out something that um, researchers are really concerned about with variants of concern because we can look at it from a, a scientific standpoint of looking at how this is spreading and which variant is winning, and so up and. Do they, are they more transmissible? Do they cause more severe disease? But now that we have the vaccines, many of the two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, are directed strictly at the spike protein. And if you have a variant within the spike protein that changes the conformation of the spike protein so that the vaccine is no longer effective against it, that is, of course, what everyone's worried about. So we have, you know, so here we're trying to vaccinate the world. If the vaccines become irrelevant, that is, of course, that makes the variants even more alarming. So that's why we need to keep track of that and really look deeply at what the vaccines are and if there are changes that might make the virus escape a vaccine-directed immune response. Just as an anecdote related to that, I, I saw um, a paper on testing um, vaccine-induced immunity on, on uh, and its ability to neutralize um, different SARS-CoV-2 variants. It was out of um, Boston. I think the um, General Hospital and the Dana-Farber Institute and, and among others there. Um, and what they found is, is that of course the variants in these, they, they mutated the, um, the a pseudovirus to have the changes that are representative of the variant, variants of concern in the spike protein. And then they um, do serial dilutions to see how effective the, um, the vaccine is or the plasma from people with the vaccine. Is, is able to neutralize the um, SARS-CoV-2 strains. And in addition to, um, so, so of course the, the story is that the Pfizer, and I think they primarily tested the Pfizer vaccine in this paper, the, the Pfizer one neutralizes um, the sort of canonical strain, which is sometimes referred to as D614G. There's all kinds of, we can get into breaking down the variant uh, taxonomy some other time, but um, it, it neutralizes that fairly well. And then you'll see that um, the various strains with the different combinations of mutations have of course worse profiles in terms of um, the, the dilution and the ability to, um, the ability to neutralize SARS-CoV-2. But also the thing I wanna introduce here is that they also tested SARS-CoV-1 and, uh, uh, and, and, and a coronavirus strain um, sampled from bat. And those did worse than anything. So um, it, it's just uh, indicative of um, the fact that these changes in the spike protein that how specific the vaccine really is to um, 
a given in your immune system, perhaps is 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 um, is to uh, you know an effective antibody response against those variants, and that uh, a set of changes that changes the the conformation of the three D molecule really really do have a huge impact on the ability of uh, of antibodies to neutralize the virus. And that's another concern we have, right? With the especially this virus uh, apparently came from an animal reservoir, so it's a zoonosis. We know it can jump back in to animals as we've seen in gorillas in San Diego, in the mink farms, in the tigers in the zoos. Bats are hosts to a, a huge number of viruses and coronaviruses, and it doesn't seem to phase them at all. The real worries are what happens if this virus gets into bats, jumps into bats, and then does recombination with an existing bat virus, coronavirus, that has, they're co-infected at the same time. They've got two different spike proteins and one virus says, hey, I like the look of your spike. <laughs> and they mix up their DNA or their RNA in this case. And then we have a whole new problem. So that's another issue that we have to be concerned about with variants and that we have to keep watch on what's happening with the viruses. Is there any evidence of new recombination with other strains or species? So how agile is the vaccine industry in dealing with these sorts of mutations? Or Isn't it amazing right now? I mean, this is like a triumph of science. I've never been so proud to be a scientist with these mRNA vaccines. It was all put sort of, I mean, we've been walking, marching up. AIDS has a, had us march up to the doors of really getting AIDS vaccine. Yeah, maybe there could be maybe. with the new technology. Yeah. But it put in the infrastructure for testing and stuff that allowed, well, and monitoring the vaccine that allowed us to be able to move quickly. And then with the first SARS uh, corona vaccine, not for SARS-CoV-2, but SARS-CoV-1, they were starting to play with this and then the disease died out. So they couldn't do it. But just the fact that you could get a vaccine when we're used to, it's like 16 years is the general lag time between wow. an infection and vaccine development and now we have a single year, that is, I mean, what we should, everybody should just be cheering and overjoyed because it's just amazing. So I think it could be that they can respond pretty quickly, especially if this is mRNA to just swap something else into it, not, you know, like within days, but within months. And think about what this could do with flu vaccines and things like that. Have you looked at the crazy incidence of flu this year? Oh, I, it's ridiculously low. I know. Think about all the lives we could save every year if we just, you know, had some minor public health um, ways that we treat each other and respect for the infectious diseases that are out there. So in short, the answer is, I think it could be a pretty quick turnaround for a new variant. But first we have to be watching and see when it occurs. Right now we see that there are a lot of variants around, right? Because right. these viruses are messy. 
they're trying new things and you know who's gonna what they want to do is make extra copies of themselves so who's making the most copies but we and we still we don't know the main lag is recognizing when this is something we have to worry about right now of course because we're right. scared we worry about everything but it takes moving through the human population unfortunately for us to say oh my god this is really bad but you know but right now it's like you know oh squirrel 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 up here <laughs> Right. And if we follow too many of those, we'll go down the wrong path. Well, we just keep, we just monitor it. And that's what part of yeah. what these resources are doing. And you can watch the ebb and flow. Note that when the UK variant came out, it really took at first, everybody was like, oh, it's spreading more, more quickly. And people were saying, some people were saying, well, hold on now, let's just wait and see. It could just be, you know, cyclical phases of these things. It could be a super spreader event. But I think now the evidence is showing us, and it probably took like six months for the evidence to really show us, okay, it does seem to be spreading more quickly than the other one. Does it cause more to serious disease? I'm not sure about that yet, but we're, you know, unfortunately a lot of this is in the rear view mirror looking at all the data, but creating right. the resources that have that data that will be very helpful, especially for when something develops again. I think that that brings us very firmly to the door of phylodynamics. I agree. Right, in terms of uh, being being able to fingerprint and, and determine which, because without some resolution uh, in the genetic sequences of the viruses, you can't tell if there's a particular uh, set of changes that are causing a characteristic attack rate or a characteristic spread in time and space um, that is should be of concern. Um, you just know that more people are getting sick. And also, it's just kind of fun to look at it, you know, although it's terrible because it's people who are sick and stuff. But when you look at the rise and fall of these viral populations and maybe we'll have some sense of what's causing this. Did this really outcompete the other one? Was there a jump to a, you know, a particularly dense population that caused it to explode as opposed, and then this one died out because it didn't make that jump? Those kind of things are cool, but not in a human impact of help sense. Yeah, more than the host pathogen thing, there is pathogen variants that are competing for dominance in some sense. And hearing you both talking about this, like it highlights this multiple scales aspect, like uh, a change which is like less than microns uh, could decide whether we can open up uh, airline traffic in the next month or maybe we have to wait another few months before we bring it. Yeah, if you think about that, think about the size of the spike protein that's part of the vaccine. And if you just have a single nucleotide change that caused a different amino acid to be in there or inserted a new one or removed one, a slight conformational change in this thing we can't even see and the immune system can't see it anymore. Suddenly it disappears like Kaiser Sose in the usual suspects. It's a spelling but mistake. It's, there. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> yeah. a small smelling mistake for a virus. It's a big thing for mankind. 
from our perspective, from its perspective, it's like, yeah, baby, try and get me now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, okay. So we, um, let's talk a little bit about maybe things that you wish we had known from day one that might have made this a little easier to, to deal with the, the virus tools that, um, you know, looking back, what, what would have been more useful in helping this and working through this? Me, number one has got to be the, the um, prevalence of and, and the significant proportion of, of cases that were asymptomatic. Um, mm. The hugely underestimated asymptomatic spread at the beginning yeah. um, really put uh, quite a quite a hurting on the ability to control it. I mean, it, it, it is, it's still people are struggling with the proportion because it's just a very hard um, subject to explore when you don't when you don't have any sense that you don't deploy your sensors and be it um, tests of people or tests in wastewater if people aren't if people aren't sick. Right. Um, and yeah. so um, and, and, and that the one person could be absolutely fine for the t duration of their uh, infectious period and another person could be in the hospital is, um, I think for me, is, is if we had a better handle on the uh, asymptomatic spread and we could have, you know, perhaps mounted a, a better response um, in, in terms of at least in, in the ideal case of implemented um, interventions. Right. For me, thinking about it from a scientific point of view, the tools that we have to examine it are there if people will deploy them. But imagine if uh, we had a better response to public health uh, kind of basic scenarios in this country, in other countries where imagine if it was even during flu season, if people social distanced and wore masks, not even, you wouldn't even have to close the schools, but just having basic hygiene things, to me, what it's really emphasized to me is that we could be saving so many lives every year. Think about, look at, look at China. It wasn't like it was a different virus there. They're just used to having these things. So they immediately went to the response and people wear masks there and, if we had gone to that, this could have been kind of a non-issue, right? Because everybody would have just said, oh, it's, right. it's coronavirus season. Everybody, let's wear your masks. And then there would be, you know, probably 475,000 more of us in the United States than there are today. Yeah, I think you highlight a, a really difficult thing to understand, like uh, in the long term, like there is a, a heightened sense of awareness for like uh, what pandemics can do. I think people uh, always reflect upon like H1N1 or uh, even the Ebola, but the uh, uh, once in a century kind of an event like this can jolt us to the reality of infectious diseases even in the 21st century. But at the same time, as the pandemic is unfolding, you also have the fatigue uh, that you face with interventions and uh, so uh, and that is just at the population scale and all this uh, uh, exchange of uh, genes or like recombinations that are happening at the, uh, the virus scale and also the, the all the socio-political things that are happening at a much higher scale like 
it, it seems very daunting to be an individual, a scientist or a policymaker. But uh, what do you think are the like, short-term and long-term approaches to these challenges? And how do we even uh, regroup and move forward? I really hope that it becomes less politicized for the public health response. This thing, if everybody, imagine if the alarm went off in Wuhan, all the Chinese people, they wore their masks. What if the whole world had said, oh, this looks, okay, guys, we've got another infection coming. Everybody mask up and everybody did. We wouldn't have even known about this. And, you know, it would have been, it would have been something we were all complaining about, like the influenza epidemic that didn't happen in the 70s or whatever it was. So if you just, if we had a standard way of dealing right. with any infectious disease that we saw on the horizon, it would probably help with anything, right? If you just were social distancing and masking and by social distancing, I don't mean necessarily closing schools, but good hygiene, smaller gatherings, perhaps. Uh, it's just very frustrating to me that right. we have this was a really hard lesson to learn. And will we learn it? In terms of measuring the success of policy changes, it's, it's sort of hard. It's extremely hard to um estimate when you've done this because a successful you know intervention strategy will make it seem like nothing was really of concern right yeah that's right you know SARS-CoV-1 um and and other avian bird flu and uh H1N1 and so on they they um you know they all had a pretty robust um response was in the news and, and stuff like that and so um and not to say, you know, that, that, that those would have ended up exactly the same, um, but it's just really hard to know. And so one of the things I'm, it's sort of an interesting question is to do this sort of retrospective analysis to see um, those countries with similar uh, climates, density profiles, uh, and, and so on that had different intervention strategies. Um, how, what, what was the, um, you know, what was the, uh, what are the, the statistics relative to bad outcomes for um, SARS-CoV-2 in, in those locations? Because you can look at, like, like Rebecca said, you can look at China, you can look at South Korea, you can look at Denmark, you can look at um, a bunch of countries that um, implemented or have stronger, um, stronger policies in place or, or more effective um, policy implementation in place than we did during this response. And I think the difference is pretty stark. And who did really good jobs? China, New Zealand, because they shut everybody down. I think they have like two deaths total. Australia, well, they wouldn't let anybody in. But to me, the main watchword is, because even Germany that was originally doing a good job, everybody got relaxed on it. So, you know, it's all new. You, I don't think you can look at anybody any of the European countries or the United States or anything and say, right. well, those guys knew what they were doing. But I really do think that the, the fact that there had been many or several infectious outbreaks in China and everybody wears masks anyhow, probably because of air pollution there, which is really bad, but that could have really changed everything. 
And if we could just learn that lesson, it would be helpful for, for everything. But then we wouldn't, you know, then this would all be a moot point and nobody would be asking us to make anything, which I'd <laughs> rather have it be anyhow. So, so in terms of um, policy changes or, or intervention changes that, you know, that if I, if, if I, if I could do it all over again, or if I were in charge, um, things I would like to see would be um, HEPA filters in every classroom um, running, they're, they're relatively inexpensive um, to, and they've been shown to do um, good particle capture relative to SARS-CoV-2 and clean the air. You could have the health department um, for restaurants put in CO2 monitors in every restaurant. So as a, as a proxy for how well the air exchange is happening, how well the air is being turned over so that you could then, if you have that sort of basic sensing capacity or capability, right. then you can start asking the question, well, our, our CO2 levels are really high. Um, maybe we should only allow curbside pickup, or maybe we should think about some, some particular um, adaption to, to allow, you know, better air exchange. Right. Also ubiquitous testing, um, either antigen, antigen-based tests, I think, that are super cheap and deployed everywhere that don't quite have a, as good of um, you know, efficacy as PCR tests, but if they're deployed everywhere, you can test you and your loved ones every day uh, and, and potentially multiple times per day as symptoms arise, um, then, it, then it becomes uh, your ability to sort of self-isolate and keep other people around you um, from getting sick becomes much more, um, you know, realized. And then what are the other, what are some of the other ones? I've been saving all these up for so long and you guys are the first people to actually ask me. I can't remember them all. We, we'll get you in for like a longer one also. Like I think there's a lot, lot of things to unpack here also. There are, yeah. And, and we are uh, at the end of time. So thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely have you back to dig deeper into this. Um, but this has been a really great introduction to phylodynamics. I'm not sure how much we actually got into the nitty gritty of phylodynamics, but. Uh... And that's okay. We were looking for a general overview. So perfect. That would be a fun one to really explore and show that. And we could do case histories of previous diseases and look at the changes. Yes. In we'll them. keep you to that. that cool. Would be fun. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Y'all have a great day. Stay Thank safe. You. Wash your hands, wear your masks yeah. and. Social distance. Have a good weekend. <laughs> and give me a call if you have any extra oh, vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. That's it for this episode of COVID Chasers. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website, biocomplexity.virginia.edu forward slash NSSAC NSAC. Or follow us on Twitter at UVA underscore NSAC. Stay safe and see you next time. On the next episode of COVID Chasers. The major challenge is that there are like constantly changing requirements. We are working in um, agile development mode remotely. I can write bad code and worst case, my code crashes and no one gets hurt. A doctor cannot see that, right? You know.